Good morning, Doxa. How are we doing? Hey, it's good to be with you guys. If we haven't met yet, my name is Nate. Someone say hi, Nate. Hey, good to be with you. Um, ju- just a note, guys, as this service gets more full, one of our values is honor. Like you've never locked eyes with someone who doesn't mean a whole lot to God. And so one way of honoring other people here, even if you're new to Doxa, is by making space for them, right? So if you've got room around you or someone's looking for seats, if you could do our church family a favor and be kind of on the offense to make room for people, that would be a huge help. Does that sound good? Awesome. And, and it, you know what? You might not love sitting next to people all the time. There's plenty of room in the next service. That's totally okay. But, man, what a, what a great problem to have that we need to put out more chairs for people to get a seat. But if you could do us a favor again and welcome people in and, and make room for them, that'd be huge. Okay? Cool. So we're in the book of Jonah. We're in this series in the book of Jonah. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Jonah 2. The last couple of weeks we started it. We've still got a few more weeks to go. But Jonah is this Old Testament prophet. If you can't find it, Table of Contents is your best friend. It'll help you out. But listen, Jonah is this prophet that is unlike so many other prophets where we don't just read about kind of what he's prophesying, what he's saying, but we read about his life and his story and his struggle, even his struggling with God. Robin Rudy did an excellent job the last couple weeks. Rob set it up and, and talked us through this miraculous book and helped us understand how it could be miraculous and still fully true and walked us through kind of the, the, an understanding, an overview as, as Jonah is called and then Rudy showed us God's mercy in the storm. So this week, this prophet of God was called by God to go to his enemies, the Ninevites, the people he did not like, and he ran away from God. And and he got caught. God sent a storm and caught him, and we meet him right there at his lowest moment. And we're going to learn something about Jonah, especially learn about his repentance. Someone say repent. Oh, you didn't like that one. Okay, that's all right. Someone say a little louder. Someone say repent. Yeah, that's, you're like, oh no, I knew we'd go there this morning, right? The one morning I invite my friend, he's talking about repentance, whatever. Like, it, the word repentance has, has this really sharp edge in our culture. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you, you, might, you might be thinking of fire and brimstone. You might be thinking of someone angry with a red face and a sign yelling at you. This word repentance has kind of fallen on hard times when we think about Christian culture. And, and again, it might not give you some like warm, happy feelings to hear me say the word repent. But it's actually got a rich history throughout the Bible and through church history. In fact, in Matthew 4, as Jesus is beginning his ministry, as he's starting to preach, the first word in his preaching is repent. Martin Luther, the, the reformer, the, the German reformer, when he, when he nailed the 95 theses, the first of those theses that, that started off the Reformation was actually referencing that one. You see it on the screen. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he's quoting Jesus beginning his ministry, he, he says he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life of a Christian, he, he's interpreting what Jesus is saying and saying the whole life, if you call yourself a Christian, is one of repentance. So if the entirety of your Christian life is supposed to be that, how's it going? Like how awkward would it be in Connection Group this week if you went around and said, okay guys, when was the last time you repented? Give me a date. Like let's, let's talk about it, right? Okay, one person thought that would be funny. No, um, that, would be, that would be a rough night at Connection Group for a couple of reasons. One, because I think we've got this tension of like, ooh, that, that feels personal, that feels close. Like I don't, I don't know if I like that. But for another, maybe the, the question in your mind is like, what, is it, what does it actually mean to repent? How do I know if I'm doing it right? Like if the entirety of your Christian life is supposed to be about this thing, could you easily with a friend who wasn't a Christian explain what repentance is? 
One simple way to think about it is it's turning from and turning to. It's turning from sin and disobedience and turning to God. And again, we'll see that in Jonah's life as he's in this moment of turning. But now hear me, it's one thing to say, oh yeah, it's turning from and turning to. It's an entirely different thing to live it out. It's an entirely different thing to, to go through that in your own life, to see a place in your life where you're like, this is not quite right. I've got to turn back to God. What does, that, what does that feel like? What does that look like? And one spot this can get sideways is when you find yourself running over the same old ground and having to repent again of this thing that you thought you repented of before. You had a moment of decision and emotion. You said, no, I'm done with this. And then you have to make that awkward phone call to your friend again and go, hey, I'm back here. When you find yourself in that place, what are you, what are you feeling? Are you feeling ashamed or crushed or embarrassed or like, man, am I, am I such a hypocrite that I can't even, I can't even do this thing right? And, and even as we're talking about this, maybe there's a sense of like, of shame in your heart of like, I don't know if I want to hear you talk about repentance because I don't think I've got this thing right. This past week, I had a couple phone calls with friends, two different people with that same story of, man, I, I've been fighting it and I've been trying and I, I, I hate my sin and yet I'm back here again. It sounds a lot like Paul in, in Romans chapter 7, right? I know what I want to do and I'm not doing it. And so repentance can feel like this weight around my neck because it's a reminder of how short I'm falling. And even if you're not a Christian, you'd never use the word repentance, like maybe there are things in your life where you've tried so hard to change and you've fought so much and you've been so tired of it and yet you keep finding yourself back there again. Your jealousy, your anger, your insecurity or the way that you've, you've used people to try to do something for you, give you some kind of value. I mean, for all of us around this, this idea of repentance that seems to be so central to Jesus' ministry and the life of Christians, all of us, I think we have some questions we need to answer this morning. First off, like what actually is repentance? Not just what do I jot in my notebook, but in my life, like practically what is repentance? How do I do it? How do I walk this thing out that is supposed to be the entirety of, like the entire part of my Christian life? Not just a moment of emotion. So we're gonna go to Jonah's life in Jonah chapter two and look at that and try to get some answers and understand what is repentance. You ready for that? Someone say, yep. All right, turn to Jonah 2 if you haven't already, please. I would love for you to have your Bible open. If you need a Bible, we would love to give you one after service. I'm just going to walk through this kind of verse by verse, this prayer of repentance in Jonah's life, and we'll make some observations together. So again, just for context, Jonah has been called by God to go to the enemy of his people, the Ninevites, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. God said, arise and go, and Jonah said no. He went down to Joppa, down into a boat, and then last week we saw he went down into the water in the belly of a fish. This guy's been running from God. God has gotten a hold of him. He can't run anymore. Let's see what his repentance looks like and try to learn from that too. Jonah chapter two, starting in verse one. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. There's already something miraculous going on here, right? That this guy has been alive, sustained inside of a fish. There's a miracle happening here. And again, if you find yourself skeptical and, and you don't really like the idea of miracles, listen, there are gonna be a lot of spots in the Bible that will be a wrestle for you. Rob did a great job a couple weeks ago talking about this a little bit more, and smarter people than me have unpacked this idea, but, but one thing to think about is, man, the, the tools of kind of observation and empirical rationalism where you can test something over and over in a lab, that, that doesn't quite apply to something that's in the category of a miracle, right? A miracle is by definition a break or an interruption in the natural order, so it makes sense why you can't tie a miracle down to examine it or dissect it. 
You, you can model what happened in the moment, but, but again, a miracle is something different. It breaks through the ordinary, so it makes sense that you might be surprised or confused or caught off guard when you encounter a miracle. Again, smarter people than me have argued way better than me on that kind of thing, but I just want you to suspend your disbelief for a moment and go, yeah, by definition, you haven't seen this happen before. God is doing something, something beautiful and unique. God has sustained Jonah, and he begins to pray from the belly of the fish. And what's going to follow is a prayer that's, that might sound a little, bit, um, a little bit kind of stilted or not how you pray, but it sounds a lot like Psalms of Thanksgiving, okay? As we get into it, this is going to sound the most like other prophetic books, or if you're familiar with Psalms, there will be pieces of this that sound like different Psalms you would have read. Verse 2, this is the content of his prayer. This is what he's crying out to God. He's saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now you'll notice he's saying it kind of in past tense. That was part of the style of writing a psalm of thanksgiving like this. But he's talking about how God has already saved him and he's looking forward to the future of the ways that God will continue to sustain him and help him and protect him. I called out to the Lord in my distress. Because he was in the water. He'll talk about that in detail later. But, but he was floundering in the Mediterranean. He, he was drowning. He was dying when God saved him. He was at his lowest. He said, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Now, you might have noticed, he's in the belly of the fish, and he says that I'm in the belly of Sheol. The fish's name wasn't Sheol, okay? That wasn't like the species of fish, right? It's a Sheol of fish. Like, it's not, it's not quite that, okay? But Sheol is this Old Testament term that, that developed a little bit over time, essentially to mean death or the realm of the dead. As God was revealing his plan and, and his path to people throughout the whole Bible, they were getting an understanding of what was on the other side. All the way at the end of the Bible, we see this beautiful picture of the new heavens and the new earth, God coming to dwell with man. But, but there were hints and pictures of that in the Old Testament. They had prophets like Isaiah talking about this, this time of God bringing restoration and dwelling with man. But as they were understanding this concept and kind of grappling with it before they saw Christ, they had Sheol as sort of this holding term for death, for the other side. Maybe the way that we would use the word like the afterlife or, or eternity when we're talking about it. Sheol, again, was, was death or the realm of the dead. He's saying, basically, I was a goner. I was as good as dead when God rescued me. I was at my lowest point. I was hopeless. Out of the belly of Sheol, that's the poetry for it, I cried, and, and you heard my voice. God heard him. Our God listens. He leans in close, and he hears us when we speak and we cry out. Not just a prophet like Jonah, but, but all who call on the name of the Lord. God hears us. He listens to us. Let's keep going with the content of this prayer. Verse three, he's gonna unpack even more of the the emotion and the situation he was in and give us kind of a poetic view of it. Verse three, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The floods surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Waves and billows. A billow is like a swell in the ocean. He's saying, I was in the water getting my head dunked over. I I couldn't swim. I couldn't sustain. I I was being pushed under. I was in the heart of the sea. But he he says, you cast me into the deep. Your waves, your billows, even as he was facing the consequences of his action, he was seeing it was God's hand ultimately over his life. Ultimately, God was working out all things in his will, even when Jonah was running from God and facing consequences. He was taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture of what God was doing, the story God was writing over Jonah's story. Now, you're gonna start seeing something that's a little bit strange here. When he says, you cast me into the deep. 
if you were here last week, you saw actually God didn't command the sailors to go throw Jonah in the water. That wasn't explicitly what God told them to do. It, it almost seemed like Jonah was kind of like giving up and he's like, hey man, I'm, whatever, it'd be better for me to be dead than go to Nineveh. So even when it was God's sovereignty, there's something about Jonah's perspective that might be a little bit off here. He's ascribing to God motivation that we're not actually seeing in the text here, but he's, he's grappling with and wrestling with his experience and trying to understand God's power and control with what he's just lived through. Keep going, we'll see that a little bit more in verse four. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. There's, there's a hopeful turn here. I, I will one day go back and look at your temple. The temple was the place where, where people were supposed to go and encounter God's presence. God couldn't be contained inside of a building that's been true the entire Bible. But he said, I will especially make my presence felt in this temple. You can come here and encounter me. Again, there's a hopeful turn. I will look upon your temple. I will go back. I will be with you. I will see you. But look at verse four again. He said, I'm driven away from your sight. Really? Did God drive Jonah away? Because the way I read chapter one, Jonah ran away. He wasn't driven away. He, he maybe felt like he was driven away because God was inviting him in something that he didn't want to. And so his response and his obedience were really lacking in that. God ultimately wasn't trying to push Jonah far away. In fact, God wasn't waiting for Jonah to pray or go to the temple to be with him. He sent the storm sovereignly in his love because he was close to Jonah. He sent the fish in his love because he was leaning into Jonah. He saved him and redeemed his life because he was pursuing Jonah. Again, Jonah's wrestling with it from his perspective. He's trying to understand what he's lived through. But, but when we take a step back and read this book, there's something about his perspective that's a little bit off. I think he's being honest. I think he actually believes, man, God, you were like driving me away. But, but I don't know if that's the whole story. Verse 5, the, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Again, death, I was as good as dead. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. God did save at his lowest. God did rescue and redeem at his lowest. God stepped in to help him at his lowest. And there's some poetry here between the end of verse 4 and verse 5 where he talks about the holy temple and the roots of the mountains. The dwelling of God in the Old Testament is described as kind of this mountain garden, this beautiful place set high up where God lived. Sometimes it's called Mount Zion, but, but there's different pictures for that. So when he's saying the holy temple, he's picturing this mountain dwelling of God, and he says, I went all the way down to the roots of the mountains. I was as far away from you as I could go. I was, I was so far away from your presence and where you were at. Again, God, though, pursued him and saved him. God wasn't waiting for him to offer the right sacrifice or whatever. God reached into his story, this disobedient prophet, to rescue him. It was the mercy of God in the storm that Rudy preached on last week. Verse seven, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. As Solomon was dedicating the temple, he asked God if, if anyone would pray towards this temple and kind of remember your presence, would you hear them? So the way Jonah is thinking about it, he, he's going, man, okay, I've cried out to God and he has saved and redeemed me. Now this is part of the mystery of prayer that maybe you've wrestled with. Where the text doesn't actually say Jonah prayed and God answered. It just, it just says God showed up, right? The, the wave stopped as soon as Jonah was in the water and the fish came almost immediately after that. God did that and appointed that. So did Jonah pray and God respond or did, did Jonah pray later or whatever? We don't entirely know. We do know that God listens to prayer and responds to prayer. 
That's part of why we want to become a praying church. It's moment like, moments like these. You don't have to have a perfect theology worked out of the exact timing of how all those things happen to be a praying person that sees God move. So again, I don't know if Jonah was like praying as he's like launched over the boat in the water. He's like, help, right? Like I don't know how that worked in his life. Or if he's in the water trying to swim and he just prays like, God, just send a fish or anything. God's like, I got you, man, right? I, I don't know the timing of those things. But we do know that God listens to prayer. The prayer of the desperate and disobedient like Jonah, if he can listen to Jonah's prayer, he can listen to anyone's prayer. My life was fainting away, but I remembered the Lord. This isn't something new to him, learning the idea that God was a savior, but it was pressed into these moments. It moved from his head to his bloodstream in a fresh way that God was actually a savior. Look at verse eight. He's gonna give a contrast in worship as he's talking about remembering the Lord. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There's a contrast he's setting up between the faithful, steadfast love of God and vain idols. And he says, I'm gonna sacrifice and vow. That, that was the, the standard kind of obedience of an Old Testament person. They express their faith and love for God by offering sacrifices, by vowing to God, by committing their stuff and their life to follow after God in obedience. He has a response of obedience, and, and, and it looks like being in the community of worship, the people that, that are going to the temple to sacrifice and offer to God. But he contrasts this with those who pay regard to vain idols. Someone say idol. An idol is anything we put in the place of the true God of the universe. And Jonah, I think, might be thinking exactly of the guys that were on the boat before that were offering and worshiping to statues, gods they had collected all over the Mediterranean. That's one way that we could have an idol, literally putting kind of a spiritual being or another god in the place of God. You might not be super familiar with that in Madison, but people around the world still wrestle with this, trying to find some hope and some help in the world and reaching out to, to beings, things other than God. Our friends in Japan see this with Shinto shrines or statues of Buddha. Maybe summer teams with Salt Company that have been to India or Japan have seen people literally bowing down and offering and worshiping to, to other gods. Maybe in your own life you've heard people talk about, man, the universe. The universe is for me. The universe has got me, right? That's, that's putting a spiritual being, even if it's spiritualizing the universe, putting it in the place of the true God. And Jonah says, if you do that, it's forsaking your hope of steadfast love. There is no steadfast love and power outside of the true God of the universe. Good luck, right? Just the way that those, those gods of the sailors were impotent to stop the storm and save their lives, only the true God of the universe can actually save and help and restore. But again, there's something a little bit off in this prayer. There's something a little bit ironic in the way that Jonah's praying because if you remember back in chapter one, the sailors seemed to be more responsive and more obedient to God than Jonah did. Did you catch that? Like the sailors were the ones that were, that were saying, God, we, we want to do whatever you want to do, but we want to spare this man's life. We're going to row hard. We're going to pray for, that his blood wouldn't be on our head, God. We're going to offer you vows and sacrifices. That's literally what they do after they throw Jonah in the water and they see God for who he is. They respond in obedience when Jonah, who knows better, has been a disobedient prophet. Again, there's something a little bit ironic when he's comparing himself favorably against those people that were actually obeying when he wasn't. Jared, in our teacher's meeting this week, kind of shed some light on this when he said, it seems like Jonah has two different problems going on in his heart. 
One, he's got this like obedience issue going on. He's not responding and obeying the way that God's calling him to, and God's dealing with that in the fish right now. But the other problem he's got is a perspective problem on the Ninevites. God's still got to deal with that later, right? God's dealt with one, with one aspect of it, but there's another layer of his heart that God is still going to work through and deal with. It's not a one and done. It's not a, it's not a I repented one time and I was complete. There's something more God's got to do in him. But he finishes us, this up by saying salvation belongs to the Lord. That's a truth he would have known as a prophet, but God has pressed it more deeply in his life and experience. It's one thing to say God is a savior. It's another thing to be saved miraculously by a giant fish, right? It's one thing to have the idea that God is a savior out there somewhere. It's another thing to be saved. To have his fingerprints, the fingerprints of God pressed on the clay of your life to go, no, 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 I, I have seen him be a savior to me. Not just somewhere out there, but to me. Part of God's plan in Jonah's life was to take it from his head to his bloodstream. This moment of repentance, taking the things that he knows and actually making them real in his life. Not just his thoughts. The passage finishes up in 10. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. God's word is powerful when he calls the storm or when he, he calls the seas to be calm, when he calls the fish to, to swallow Jonah or spit him out. God's word is powerful. And this is like an aside, this isn't the point of the message, but that's why we gather around the Bible. You don't need to hear my opinion and my thoughts, you actually need to hear God's words and together we need to unpack this because God's word is powerful enough to change your life, not just my ideas or whatever. No one on this stage is smart enough to, to actually bring deep and lasting and real change in anyone's life. God has to do that. Lord spoke to the fish, it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. The text doesn't tell us exactly where it spat him out. I'm assuming it was back at Joppa, the place he left, because chapter three is almost kind of a restart of the whole book where, where it seems like he's getting the call again in a fresh way. But picture that. If he's back in Joppa, if he left there on a boat and he came back in a fish, what do you think people at the docks are thinking, right? They saw this dude get on a boat and all of a sudden he's like, like, I, I know, I know fresh fish doesn't smell as bad as like old fish, but fish guts for three days does not sound like it smells good, right? Like imagine this like stinky prophet walking up onto shore and everyone's like, dude, what happened to you? And he's like, well, where do I start, right? This miracle has happened to him and, and as he's washing the smell of fish out of his clothes and off of his skin, as he's telling the story to people again and again what just happened to him his last few days, he doesn't know what's gonna happen next. But I imagine those people around him would begin to be kind of a, accountability for him a little bit, right? Like the next time God responds, he's like, dude, I don't want to have to explain the fish smell again. I should probably obey this time. Like God has put something in his life, even as a reminder and a community builder around his repentance. The smell of fish in his clothes and in his skin would be an invitation for community to come in and go, dude, what happened here? <laughs> How do we help you not get into that situation again, man? Okay, what do we learn about Jonah's repentance from this, this prayer of thanksgiving? What are the elements we see of repentance coming out of this? To be totally honest with you, I had a, a completely different message written about Jonah's repentance going in teacher's meeting Tuesday. I'm glad you found that funny. It wasn't funny on Tuesday, but... <laughs> I, I had a message written about how bad of a repenter Jonah was. All of the elements and the ways that his repentance seems half-hearted and incomplete and all of that. I walked into the teacher's meeting and was like, well, guys, Jonah sucks at repentance. Don't be like Jonah. And they're like, you might be missing it, right? 
And I'm so grateful that we have a plurality. We have a teacher's meeting. We have multiple people speaking into these messages, so it's not just my words or my ideas. Because I was wrong. I was being too harsh on Jonah. I was seeing it black and white when there's more going on to it. I was ready to write him off because he hadn't done it all perfectly the way that I wanted him to. Now, I don't think he's a phenomenal example of repentance. I think his prayer of repentance is actually shot through with some self-pity and some justification, and he's got his perspective on God a little bit off. But I think he's being real. I think he's being honest. I think he's taking everything he's got and he's just going to God with it, which is the best place to go. He's not waiting until he's got his language all perfect and poetic and pretty and put together. He's, he's just going to God with whatever he's got and, and his repentance. Yeah, it's not all the way to the deepest roots of his heart, but it's, it's something. Again, it's honest, it's real. I think part of why I'm hard on Jonah is because I'm more like Jonah than I wish I was. Like we see at the end of the book, Jonah, Jonah's heart still has some work to be done on it. I see that in myself. And the other week, I was, I was realizing that I was doing this thing that a friend in connection kind of put good language to where I was reading my resume to God. Things weren't going the way that I wanted them to, and so I was going to God and being like, God, I've done this. I did that. I've been working hard here. God, why isn't this happening this way? Sometimes I can get wound tight around the plans that I have and the way I want things to go. Can you relate? Like, like the timing I've got for things, it's like, this makes sense, this is logical, if I do this, this should happen, all of this. And all of a sudden I find this check engine light in my soul that my wife has pointed out. I get frustrated about dumb little things that aren't actually the issue, but the issue is that my heart is so wound tight around my control that, that even the little thing gets me frustrated, overwhelmed. My, my joy is derailed because things aren't going the way that I thought they should go, the way I want them to go. That, that check engine light was going off in my soul the other day, and it, probably because I was checking my email at 10 at night when I shouldn't do that, right? That's such a silly thing, but it's an expression of this control and this frustration. If I, if I get an email and, and, or a text or whatever, and my wife hears me go, ugh, what? It's, it's because my heart issue is being exposed. So I was walking last week and, and praying about this and repenting of this, and and I felt like God was being really kind and, and helping me and comforting me, but I realized, like, this isn't new. I've repented of this before. I've been over this old ground before, and, and I've had to come back and ask for forgiveness and grace again. Like, this isn't new in my heart. And I had justification and reasons why and all of that stuff, whatever, but again, I'm, I think I'm harsh with Jonah because I'm more like Jonah than I wish I was. Can you relate to that at all? Like you see that stuff in your heart and you're like, man, haven't I dealt with this before? I've been chopping at this old root for so long. Why is it still here? Or, or maybe when you see sin, it kind of freaks you out in your life and so you, you stay distant from God for a while until you can kind of figure out how you want to say it or how you want to define it or whatever and, and kind of pretty yourself up before you come back to him. Yeah, maybe, maybe our repentance, part of why it freaks us out so much is because it doesn't fit in this neat little tidy package of checking the boxes and be done with it and move on from there. But I, I think the first principle we need to learn from Jonah's life about what repentance is, the, the thing that he actually did and did well is he, he started with what he had. He was real with what he had. I think that's the first principle we've got. Start with what you've got. 
when it comes to your repentance, just start with what you've got. If you're in the belly of a fish, start with what you've got. There's a responsiveness to the prompting of God that we need to cultivate in our lives. To put ourselves in places like this, in community, opening the word where we can actually respond to God quickly and start with whatever we've got in our repentance. Again, not waiting until we've got it all perfect and neat and tidy or we've got exact language to sort out the the real roots of our heart, just starting with whatever we've got in repentance. Now, now I want to give you a walkthrough of what kind of a, a full picture of repentance is. This is what I like wish Jonah did, but also what I wish I did. There's sort of five elements, I think, that work in order of what repentance is. First, you recognize the reality of your sin. This is for you note takers, you're salivating right now. Recognize the reality of your sin. Psalm 51 puts this well, that it, all of our sin is really against God, ultimately. We recognize the reality of our sin, that it's not just an accident or whatever, but that our, our motivations are shot through with sin. Then we feel the appropriate remorse of our sin. Again, not being like completely crushed and, and, and pushed away from God or whatever, but, but realizing and feeling an emotional weight to our sin. But then we turn to God's mercy. We accept his grace and forgiveness, and we walk in obedience as a response. I think that's what a full picture of repentance looks like. But again, the, so many of these things you can't put on a scale of 1 to 10 and kind of plot yourself. You can't give yourself a letter grade like, am I feeling appropriate remorse? I think I'm like an A plus in remorse right now, dude. You know, But so many of these things, you just start with what you've got and you take a step into them. Now, even among these five things, there, there are places you can check yourself. If you never feel remorse about your sin, maybe you need to start praying for that. Or, or if you say things like, yeah, God can forgive me, but I can never forgive me, maybe you need to check yourself on that. Maybe you're not actually accepting the mercy and grace of God that he's been offering because, again, if you could say God forgives me but I can't forgive me, maybe you don't really get what God's forgiveness is like, how big his forgiveness is. But then walking in obedience as response. That's the challenge of the last half of the book of Jonah. God has begun to show Jonah that he is the Savior. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's pressing these things into Jonah's life, but there's an invitation for Jonah to respond in obedience, to take this repentance and actually turn and move in the other direction. God is not done with Jonah. Just like God's not done with the the sailors or the Ninevites or you or me. Like part of the hope that we can have to keep coming back to repentance over and over and over and over again is because we're not coming back to a disappointed father that's ready to smack us upside the head for what we've done wrong. We come back to a loving savior that is willing to chase down a disobedient prophet. That is willing to go after someone who has heard clearly and directly from him and said, no, I'm going the other way. That kind of God is the one we go back to. The, the way that repentance can actually be the entirety of the Christian life and that be good news and not crushing to you is because repentance isn't just turning away from doing bad things and turning to trying harder to do good things. It's turning away from running away from God and turning to the one that ran to you in love. The one that ran to pursue you and chase you down in love. Again, it's not turning from, from do bad things to do good things. It's turning from walking away from God to the arms the nail-pierced arms of a Savior who did everything to love you. God might not have sent a fish to save you, but he sent something so much better. He sent his son. Jesus is God in flesh who came and lived a perfect life, a life of perfect obedience, 
And listen to me, Jesus never repented because he never had to. He was never turned the wrong direction. He was always walking in step with the Father in perfect relationship. But on the cross, he took the consequences for your and my sin. Our running away from God or our vain idolatry, all of the things that we've tried to build to have a fulfilling life, to try to find satisfaction or hope in things other than God. Idolatry, that's a whole other message here, but you and I, listen to me, you and I are worshipers. And we've worshipped so many other things other than the true God. On the cross, Jesus didn't just give you an example of being a nice person. He took on his back the sin of the world. Your sin if you would trust him and put your faith in him. So that when God sees you, he doesn't see someone who needs to try harder to do better and just figure out how to repent more. He sees a son or daughter that is already accepted, already adopted, already loved, that the the phrase, it is finished, has been written over your sin, and so when you turn, you can turn back completely and fully to mercy and grace and a welcome home from the Father. That is the motivation for our ongoing repentance. That is how we can actually walk out of this. So if you start with what you've got, I think the next thing we need to learn from Jonah's life, the, the, the other principle that goes with it is we don't settle there. We don't settle there. We don't settle for sin, the same sin we've had before. There's a, a phrase there, a mark of a disciple we talk about here, being a becomer. Someone say becomer. We, we need that phrase becomer because we are still becoming. We're still becoming the people God has called us to be. You are not arrived yet. But sometimes we can treat our sin as if we're, we're surprised that we're not arrived. You know what I'm saying? When we talk about the phrase becomer, we're saying you can't drift towards godliness, but repentance is the moment where we recognize the drift away from God. We recognize the drift in our hearts or our lives away from who God's called us to be, and we turn back in worship, in thanksgiving, we turn to the mercy of God. We don't settle for for the same life and the same sin we've always had. We don't settle just on God's mercy as if that didn't change or transform us. Here's one way you can tell if you're settling. If you actually become callous to the sin in your life. Your conscience becomes less sensitive, you're less responsive to God, you're used to the same old sins, and so they don't move you in the same way. Again, the goal isn't for you to ultimately work out all sin in your life where you don't need grace, or you don't need to depend on God, that's not the goal, but the goal is to begin to repent more and more quickly, and so if you catch yourself repenting more and more slowly, maybe you've begun to settle. Those things that used to bother you don't bother you as much anymore. Those things that used to prick your conscience don't really, don't really get your attention. Friends, listen to me. The mercy and grace of God is an invitation not to settle, but to move and to be pressed and to run towards the gracious one with his arms outstretched for you. Last kind of thing as we close up, I want to tell you how you can begin to put this into practice and not settle. Three things that, that I think we begin to see in Jonah's life. First, respond quickly. Then obey immediately. And third, invite community. Respond quickly to whatever God is prompting you to. And, and you need to make space in your life to hear from God to respond to him. You're already doing a great job being at church and hearing the word of God. Jonah had so many opportunities to respond to God, so many times where his conscience would have been pricked. When the word of the Lord came to him, when he had to travel down to Joppa, there would have been so many moments where where God was giving him opportunities to respond. He had to get down to the dock and find a boat and pay a fare and, and all of that stuff. 
We cannot settle by learning how to respond quickly and putting ourselves in a place to hear from God and to respond to whatever he's inviting us into, a, a prompting, a conviction, something from the word, and go back to him and go, God, what do you have for me here? Respond quickly. The next thing we need to do is obey immediately. I'm picturing Jonah at the dock. He knows he's running away. He's got the fair money in his hand, and he's been pacing up and down the dock for a while trying to figure out, man, should I do this? Should I do this? Should I do this? But you know if you've, if you've been... If you've been in the dock yourself, you know you can, if you just pace long enough, you'll find a reason to do what you already wanted to do. You know if you give yourself time, you can find a validation for what you already wanted to do, even if it's against what's clear from what God says. We need to learn how to obey quickly so we don't give ourselves time to build an excuse for what we already wanted to do, to run away from God. And man, I've done that too many times in my life. I know what you want, God. You have prompted me and you've told me, and I'm just gonna give this a little bit more time. Friends, let's obey immediately as an antidote to settling. And the last thing we need to do is invite community. I think God forced that on Jonah with his stinky fish smell, you know, all of that. I think people would have known and heard the story of this prophet. In fact, this book isn't recorded from Jonah's first-person perspective. Someone else recorded it, so other people heard and knew about what Jonah had been through. He had to tell that story to people. I think to help our repentance and not settling, we need to invite community. That looks like finding people in your connection group to actually confess that stuff to for the, for the fifth time and the sixth time and the seventh time. That looks like telling people the real stuff going on in your life over a long period of time, not just jumping from one community to another so people have pieces of the story, but, but people can actually know the full picture. I think it's inviting community regularly, often, and long-term in a church family. That's why we have membership. Membership is not some fancy club or whatever. It's just people saying, hey, I need community in my life and you do too. Let's do this together. Invite community. And friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, can I just invite you to stop running from God? Like don't make him get a fish, right? I know we're inland, but like don't, don't make him chase you that far down when you've got Jonah's story. I think if Jonah was standing here telling you, he would go, man, don't, don't do it. Come quickly. Your first repentance could be today where you turn from a life running away from God and you turn to God. You could begin this life of repentance where you actually walk in line with the one who made you and loves you. Your worship could be set right. Accept the mercy and grace of the Savior who loved you enough to give himself for you. Don't wait. I think to summarize this book, this, this chapter, there's kind of a phrase that I think we can hang our hats on to, to, to capture what we're talking about today. Ongoing repentance is the right response to God's endless grace. Ongoing repentance is the right response to God's endless grace. His grace will never run out for you and he proved that with the cross and the empty tomb. And so we get to respond with a life of ongoing repentance. And what would happen if we were people that lived this out? What would begin to change in your life if you, if you started with what you had, just repenting with whatever you've got right now, but you didn't settle for, for comfort or a callous conscience? What if we actually lived this life of ongoing repentance? I think we'd begin to see real change in our lives. Not because stopping sinning is entirely the goal, but we would repent faster. And even when we'd see that, that turn in our heart, we'd begin to change. I think over the next year, two years, you would be a different person 
Not because you'd somehow conquered all of your sin or whatever, but because your life was oriented day after day over and over back to the Savior. I think we'd be more aware of God's grace together. We'd have stories of God's grace as we repent and turn back. We would see it again and again and again as our eyes are off of our own performance. I think we'd see relationships restored. That's one of the the, the places of brokenness that our society cannot figure out, how to get relationships back together, how people can still be friends or community when they disagree. Repentance is the beginning of that, going, hey, I might be wrong in this. I might have some of this off, or I shouldn't have said that that way. If we were repenting people, I think we'd see restored relationship. Man, maybe there's even a name right now where you need to, to repent in a relationship and see restoration. Write that name down if that name came to mind. But I think finally we would have an attractive witness to the world. If we were living this lifestyle of ongoing repentance, people would, wouldn't just see a group of people gathered to worship and, and to have community, but they would see the Savior who gives us grace day after day. Not because of our strength or putting it all together or looking good, but because we were people dependent on that grace. That grace of God would shine through us as our church. Man, I, I want that in my life. Do you want that too? Let's pray and invite God to do that in us more and more together today. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm, I'm well aware of the ways that my repentance isn't like pretty. It's not neat and buttoned up and tied together. There's so many things that I've, I felt like I was over and I had a moment of like decision and emotion and whatever and yet I find myself back in need of grace again. When we find ourselves in that place in need of grace like Jonah in the fish, would you even write the words of Romans 8.1 over our minds? over our hearts, over our lives. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, you paid for it, and so you freely invite us back again and again to experience the endless grace of God. So help us be a people of repentance. Help us have that right response. Would you do that work in us day by day and make us a people that throw ourselves back on your grace over and over again. We trust you, Jesus. Thanks that we can pray all these things in your name.